Welcome back to the Veterinary Viewfinder. This week, we're discussing animal hoarding, an important conversation you don't want to miss. Welcome back to the Veterinary Viewfinder, the podcast that tackles the toughest topics in veterinary medicine. And this week, we are talking about an incredibly important topic, and that is animal hoarding and our relationship to it and our responsibilities as veterinary professionals. As always, I am your host, Dr. Ernie Ward. I'm Dr. Cindy Courtney. And I'm registered veterinary technician, Becky Mosser. And I'm so excited to introduce you guys to our guests this week. Her name is Dr. Jill Kirk, and she's calling us this morning from Sarasota, Florida. And she works in what she calls a small little corner of her world in veterinary medicine and is a veterinarian that I get to work with on the field investigation response team for the ASPCA. So you guys help me welcome this morning, Dr. Jill Kirk. How are you? I'm great. Thank you. How are you doing? Doing wonderful. We are so excited to have you. You are a University of Florida grad, right? I am. Yes. Go Gators. One of the neat things and unique things they have going down there at the University of Florida is their forensic and shelter medicine programs, which you're super involved in. So tell us a little bit about your background, how you got there, and let's hear more about what you are doing in this tiny little corner of your world. Well, it's an interesting story how I got started in veterinary medicine. My mother's a veterinarian, so you would think growing up that I would have gotten all this, oh, you're going to be a vet when you grow up too, right? And No, no, no. Yeah, no, I was... <laughs> Totally opposed to that because I didn't want anyone deciding my future for me. So I uh, graduated with a degree in theater from a tiny nice. little school in the middle of nowhere, Ohio, and decided about my senior year, hey, you can't really make a living as an actress when you're not that good. So <laughs> <laughs> little fish in a big pond. Um, so I decided that, you know, all of my life had re revolved around animals. And I thought, you know what, maybe I do want to make a career out of this rather than just you know, pet sitting. Um, so decided to go to vet school, took me a couple tries to get in, but I finally did get in. Um, and the, my entire reason behind wanting to become a veterinarian was to be a shelter veterinarian. Um, you know, I always wanted to be a voice for the voiceless and speak up and help those that really needed help. So UF was always where I really wanted to go because they do have such a fantastic reputation with their shelter medicine department. Um, they're one of the few schools in the country that that have a department like that. So I'm really lucky. Well, well Jill, let, let me just circle back to that just a moment. Why shelter medicine? Like that's, you know, that's a, a very specific sort of a, a thing you want to do as a younger person. Why? Why shelters? You know, I think it's because I got started really working with animals. My my like I said, my mother's a veterinarian and she worked in private practice and then in when I was later on in high school, she started working for a shelter and I started working there, you know, summers in between semesters and just really fell in love with it and saw how many animals needed help. And, you know, my draw was never to go in and have a day practice job where all I'm doing is vaccines. And certainly that's, you know, an important part. And we absolutely need veterinarians that do that. But, you know, my my drive was always to help those animals that don't have anyone speaking up for them. Wow, that is really cool. Now, explain to me, though, how you got from this love of shelter, your mom's a veterinarian, into theater and then out again. <laughs> you know, I, I think I just fell in love with, with theater in high school and, and sort of decided early on, yeah, this is what I'm going to do. And then, you know, the more I got involved with it, the more, you know, it was just like, well, this is fun, but it's not really, there was nothing driving me. And I would always just go back to, to animals and, and you know, how 
my life didn't feel complete without doing something for animals. You know, I, I always find it so interesting. Legitimately, you are the fifth or sixth person that we've interviewed who has an undergraduate degree in the arts, who has gone on to be a, a wonderful leader in the field of veterinary medicine. Um, I, I, it might be a weird question, but do you feel like that that interest in the arts and creativity and theater helps you as a veterinarian? I absolutely do. You know, everyone um, in has always said to me, oh my gosh, you're so good with clients. And I jokingly say, well, yeah, because <laughs> I know how to fake it. But you know, <laughs> obviously, you know, I, I am compassionate. And I, I feel like maybe, you know, there's that same drive that leads you towards becoming involved in theater and playing different roles and, you know, delving into other people's lives and personalities that allows you to have that same sort of empathy towards animals. And, you know, maybe it's a little anthropomorphic, but, you know, creating their worlds and, you know, wanting them to actually have a voice and speaking up for them when they can't. Well, and I can certainly say that that part of Dr. Kirk makes her a lot of fun to work with. <laughs> I'm glad you think so. <laughs> <laughs> Already, I get a feeling like we we love being a part of your cast. <laughs> that we is put on truth. a great show. <laughs> Well, so now we fast forward and you're, you've really become active in a very specific part of the world and that is animal hoarding. And so I guess to start this conversation off, because I know our listeners are eager to get to the good stuff, um, what is animal hoarding? Just define it for us because I know this, it's kind of a complex disorder. It is. And so hoarding is defined as more animals than a person or a group of people can take care of. You know, people have asked me, well, how many animals constitutes hoarding? And you can't put a number on it. For example, I have 12 animals at home. I have three horses and nine cats, which, yes, makes me a crazy cat lady, but they are all very well cared for. Um, but, you know, someone else who lives in a small one-bedroom apartment, if they had nine cats, you might say, eh, are you able to do all that? Um, so, you know, if you have a team of 20 people, you can have 100 animals. But if you're just one person and you're not giving the animals the care that they need, whether it's you know individual attention or medical care or things like that, when you get become overwhelmed, that's, to me, what hoarding is. And, and I know that there's been a lot of discussion over the years. I mean, this is a topic that's also near and dear to my heart, but, you know, whether or not this is actually part of OCD or some, you know, where, where is the current evidence now? Like, where do we, I know, I know it's not part of the DSM, but where do we categorize? Like, where, where's the evidence sort of leading us into the dis, this disorder in people? You know, as far as my knowledge goes, there, it's not qualified yet as a sort of mental disease or mental disorder. So there's no you know, it's not like, oh, you have OCD or, oh, you have right. multiple personality disorder. It's just, you know, it's something that I think those of us on the veterinary side, we see it as a mental disease and something that needs help because the recidivism rate is almost 100% if these people right. don't right. get help. Right. Yeah. And I think you make such a great point there, too, when you say it's that becoming overwhelmed. I, I think that there is all of a sudden a line where things are really good and then all of a sudden they're not. And and there is almost always some sort of mental health condition involved. But I think that this is where it becomes really difficult for veterinarians in general practice because we're not able to make diagnosis on humans. And so how can veterinarians in general practice sort of help identify the line in their clients. Right. And that becomes, it does become a very tricky situation because, you know, no one's going to be bringing you 20 cats in a single appointment. They're going to be bringing right. you one cat or one dog and you might find a few problems with it. You know, it might have fleas, it might be emaciated. 
Um, but they're not going to be bringing you all their animals at once. And more than likely, they're not going to say, hey, I've got 37 more animals at home that also look like this. So it becomes difficult in that situation to be able to put your finger on the problem and say, hey, this doesn't seem right. But, you know, sometimes what you'll see is, uh, you know, a patient or I'm sorry, a client bringing in a lot of different animals or a lot of young animals. You know, sometimes they don't get beyond the age of five. So if you have a client bringing in you know, kittens or puppies or young animals all the time, repeatedly, you know, it's like, well, what happened to the last one that I saw? So so what are, what's the first step that you would advise? So, um, you know, you, you sort of are, are suspicious. There's a lot of these things that are checking your boxes. W- what's a veterinarian or a veterinary technician to do? Well, this is the hard part of, of any part, you know, whether it's hoarding or abuse, whatever you think you're seeing, it's, it, it takes courage. It really does because it's really easy in your mind to go through like, oh, well, you know, and you make up excuses. Well, maybe this is, maybe I'm just making this up. Maybe, you know, they're helping someone else out. And it really takes a lot of courage to approach them and say, hey, this doesn't seem right. Do you need help? What else is going on? And, you know, one of the easiest things to do is say, how many other pets do you have at home? You know, and not that they're necessarily going to be honest with you, but they might be, you never know until you ask. And, you know, if, if they're open and say, hey, you know, I've got 20 animals and I need help, then you can sort of, you know, you always want to start it with a conversation. You never want to start accusing people of things. But if you can open up a dialogue and say, hey, do you need help? You know, can we help you find some other homes for these cats? Can we help you, you know, it, it's, it's about offering them help first. And if that doesn't work, then you've got a, a bigger fight on your hands. <laughs> well, Jill, you know, years ago, we had a situation like this and we were highly suspicious. We later were validated in our suspicions. And we did sort of like what you just said. And and I started raising this question, you know, like, says everything okay? You know, it's like, you know, how many cats do you have now? And, you know, this person had over 60 cats at the time. And um, they became very defensive, uh, mm-hmm. very agitated and labile and it didn't go well. <laughs> it didn't go well at all. Right. Um, and, and it later turned out that they had you know, they started veterinary shopping and, and actually it was the culmination of two different events that led us all to sort of say, wait, there's a problem to the authorities. So now you're back in that exam room and you're suspicious or you're concerned, let's say it like that. Mm-hmm. And, and the owner, you know, you, you and I know that most of the time they're not going to say, yes, you know, by the way, I think I have a mental disorder and need help. You know, that's <laughs> that probably, would make it so easy. That would make it so easy. So, you know, now the client's kind of getting defensive and so forth. What what are your next steps? And I can share with you what happened in that situation with me years ago. But what, what do you advise as the next step? So this thing goes badly. You know, the person says, I don't have a problem. I only have two cats or whatever. And they storm out. Right. And that's certainly probably the most likely thing that's going to happen, especially if someone does have a problem and they haven't admitted it to themselves, they're likely to become defensive and irritable and, you know, probably storm out. So what you can do in that sense is you should call your local animal control department. Um, There's a website that, you know, lists, doesn't matter what county you're in, you should be able to call your animal services and report it to them. I think the really important thing for veterinarians and veterinary staff to remember is that we are not the law. It is not up to us to decide if there is abuse, if there is neglect. It's up to us to report it. That's our duty is to report our suspicions, not to convict the people. Right. And Jill, what happened in my situation is we did that. We called and, and I actually, you know, knew the people personally. We worked closely with our animal control services people and uh, you know, said, hey, this I'm afraid something's going on here, whatever. And quite frankly, I was dismissed. You know, it was just like, eh, you know, we get these calls all the time. I mean, you know, it's probably just you're too sensitive, yada, yada, yada. It was only after a second veterinarian 
made a phone call based on a, on a real uh, now at this point the case they saw was more obvious neglect. So now it, it it elevated, escalated. This thing gotten worse. And then, of course, the, the authorities took action later and confiscated 60-something cats. You know, I mean, you know these stories. You know how they always end. But then here's the, the sad part, which you touched on, and I want to get back to this. This person later wound up going right back into this. And, you know, yep. she she left our area. They, she moved across county lines. But, you know, I think it was maybe two years later, a similar instant had occurred. Um, what is being done to help people like this? Not a lot, sadly. You know, there are so many cases of hoarding where it does take multiple complaints from veterinarians, from the public to say, hey, you know, this house has a smell or there's something going on. It's usually not, you know, one report and the problem's fixed. It's usually a series of reports. And then, like you said, all they have to do is move across county lines and they can start all over again or, you know, certainly state lines. But the problem is that right. there is no national database of people who, you know, shouldn't be allowed to adopt pets or shouldn't be allowed to rescue pets. It's really simple in this country to just move the next county and all of a sudden you've got the problem started all over again. Because as I said earlier, the recidivism rate is almost 100% because there is so little help being given to these people. One of the things that really shocked me when I first got out into practice is there was a situation that my hospital was dealing with that was a supposed rescue um, that seemed to be a little bit both in over their head, but also a, a little bit unorthodox in how they preferred to deal with the cases that they were seeing. But this was definitely a rescue that was employing multiple people um, and yet was in over their heads. And I think that was something that our team struggled to deal with is like, if this is a really bad situation, how are there 10 or more people that are seeing this every day and not realizing how bad the situation is? Um, do you guys see that or encounter that much where it's it's not just one person, but but there are multiple people who are, are involved in this and yet there are still still animals in distress? Sadly, all the time. We do see that all the time. You know, we've had cases of hoarding where we've gone in and helped the animals and they still have supporters, whether they're people that say, oh, no, they're doing a great job and no one else would help these animals or they're monetary supporters that are paying their court costs. There's always people that are supporting you know, they don't see, I think they don't see what we see from a veterinary standpoint. They don't see the illness. They don't see, you know, all of this. There's, we've gone on sites where there have been dead bodies, you know, not buried, just animals that passed away right. on the ground. And people are still like, no, no, they're helping them. They're doing a great job. And so you're not only fighting, you know, one or two people, you're fighting sometimes a whole group of support. And you have to be like, you have to sort of tamp it down and say, okay, they're not looking at it from my eyes. They're looking at it from, you know, probably where it started a few years ago. And they truly think that these people are helping them when we can see from an outside aspect that they're not. Yeah. And Jill, you know, one of the things that Cindy sort of brings up there is this role of newly emerging rescue and foster definitions. And I know in our state, there was a, a case where a person was purportedly a foster home and they thought, I, I believe truly that, you know, because this is a mental disorder, they thought they were helping and they felt that by taking animals out of shelters and bringing them into their home, that was a better fate for them and quality of life than leaving them in the shelter. I would disagree because the conditions turned out to be deplorable. But, you know, the reality is sometimes we have to look beyond those labels, right? Because, you know, this person was quote unquote a foster, but they were fostering like 40 something dogs. They were in horrible states of care. So how, how can veterinarians, like Cindy was saying, like, how can we navigate that? Because that's a new complexity that's really, you know, only in, in the past decade or so. Absolutely. And, you know, it's not fair of me to think this way, but anytime I hear the word sanctuary, it spends a, a set. Yes. 
Yeah, yeah. It sends a chill up my spine. Yeah. You know, certainly there are good sanctuaries out there, but more often than not, every place that we go in and when, you know, when we have a hoarding case, it's, you know, some kind of, you know, sanctuary, whether it's, you know, the cat sanctuary or the dog sanctuary. And it's just like, oh, don't use that word because it does become difficult, you know, and when they can put on a great, you know, website or a great Facebook presence and, you know, all you're seeing are the good stories. You're like, hey, I should support these people. They're really helping these animals. They're taking them out. But every time I see, you know, something come up on Facebook, like, oh, this person rescued a thousand dogs and here's their island. I'm just like, oh, God, those animals can't be well taken care of with just one person. And, uh, and I think, again, that there's that fear that so many of us in the, in the veterinary profession have, too, when we are, are making those excuses for ourselves, I think, that, uh, and we know that support is there uh, about the PR piece of this as well, that if we do report, um, what could the potential fallout from that be? And, and to be honest, I think a lot of us are also not familiar with what the legislation is in our individual states about whether or not we're protected from litigation uh, if we do report uh, in good faith. So uh, any insights on that uh, for for our listeners? Absolutely, yeah. If you go to the website, um, nationallinkcoalition.org, it's a fantastic website about the link between animal abuse, which includes hoarding, domestic violence, child abuse, elder abuse, but they do have a link uh, if you you know, go through and find it about, and it, it lists your, by state, who's protected. So for the example, in Florida, veterinarians are protected from reporting in good faith. So there is no legislation that can come back. You can't be sued if in good faith you're reporting. Mm-hmm. I think that's such a, an important point to, to make though, and for everyone to take the responsibility to know what the laws are in their state so they feel comfortable. Because like Dr. Cindy said, it amazes me how hesitant people can be to report or to say something because they're afraid of upsetting that client. And and I understand there's a risk or a concern of if I alienate them, then maybe those pets won't get any help at all. And so we really have to toe that line so carefully. But I, I really have to say, I think it's so important, you know, here where we say, see something, say something, because it's our responsibility to advocate for them. And, and I really have to encourage everyone to be willing to risk losing a client to save what in many cases is hundreds of animals. And, and Jill, that's a really good point that I want to now insert an even more contentious part of this issue. And that is the role of veterinary professionals as hoarders. Because I've been involved personally in a case where a veterinarian was later found to be a hoarder. But talk to us about that. I mean, we may have a colleague, a coworker, a, an acquaintance that who is who's a veterinary professional, and yet they also suffer from this mental disorder. Absolutely, it doesn't just affect, you know, one part of society. It's not just the poor or the rich or the school bus driver. It's everyone. So veterinarians, especially, you know, we are a compassionate people, and so it's easy for us to take in all the injured, all the broken, and think that oh, well, I have a degree, so I know what I'm doing. But that doesn't mean you can't be an overwhelmed caregiver. You know, so many hoarders, there are, you know, different types of hoarders. There's the overwhelmed caregiver. There's, you know, the people who who think no one else can protect this animal the way that I can. But it's very easy, I think, for veterinarians and technicians and anyone else working in this field to become that, that hoarder. It's very simple to fall into that. And I think it's hard, too, for us to, you know, especially, you know, it's hard enough to call out a stranger, but to call out a coworker and say, right. hey, 
are you doing okay? It's pretty hard to do that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think what's interesting is if, if I hate to say it, but even as veterinary professionals, I think we can be guilty of saying, well, well, it's an animal. Cause I mean, I think if we were talking about children, I mean, none of us would hesitate. And, and if you were a human professional or, or human medical professional, and we were talking about kids that might be stuck in this situation, you know, we wouldn't hesitate. And yet that's where the stakes are. You know, when we, when we know this kind of abuse is going on towards animals, the, the stakes can be that high that then children can be getting abused and, and other family members can be getting abused. And I think maybe that's what we need to be doing and how we need to be looking at it. You know, even um, if you're a, a psych- psychologist and someone is in therapy with you, as much as you're trying to help that person, if they indicate that they they may be hurting their child, you, you are obligated to report that. Um, even if there may be a broken relationship there then with in that therapeutic relationship. So so just kind of keep those things in mind. Absolutely. And that is so important. I mean, such a good point that you brought up. It's so important to remember that MDs, they have mandatory reporting. So if they even suspect abuse, they have to report. And for the most part, I feel like John Q. Public understands that. And so they might not take quite as aggressive a stance as say a pet owner would. And they're like, you know, hey, I've got to follow the law. I've got to do this. They're like, well, okay. Yeah, you know, I'm I'm sure that, that would some people help don't us say, in some ways. Well, right? yeah, I mean, you, you you hit the nail on the head. It absolutely would. There are some states that do have mandatory reporting, um, you know, but there are far more that do not have mandatory reporting. You know, the the AVMA, for example. So our you know headquartered national organization says that veterinarians should report abuse regardless of what the law mm-hmm. in their state says. Right. And you know, absolutely, we should. Um, there is one state where you are actually not at all protected and not technically legally allowed to report animal abuse, which seems a little backwards. Um, but you know, like I said earlier, you hit the nail on the head. Animal abuse does not exist in a vacuum. So, you know, if there are children in the home or even if there aren't children, like I said, it's linked to domestic violence, elder abuse, child abuse. So, you know, if you see it goes back to the airport. If you see something, say something, you know, you're, you're not only potentially saving an animal's life. You are also potentially saving a human Mm -hmm. life. Jill, how do you, how do you deal with this emotionally? I mean, you know, these are tough, tough battles that you're fighting. How do you cope with it? I mean, how how do you, how do you sleep at night? You know, it's, it's, (laughs) these are things that keep you up. You know, you were, you can tell you're deeply concerned. So, I mean, how do you personally deal with it? You know, I had a friend the other day say, gosh, that must be so hard, your work, going in and seeing all these cases. And I immediately said, it's not. It's not. Because when I'm there, I know those animals are finally getting the help that they need. You know, it's and obviously, you know, it's really sad when you actually go on site and see these deplorable conditions that the animals were in. Um, But I really always just try and focus on the positive of, well, now they're safe. Now they're getting the help that they need. They're getting these medications. They're getting a soft bed. They're getting treats. One of my favorite things to do when we do these intake exams is to offer the dogs peanut butter. And some of them, their eyes just (laughs) light up because they've never been given peanut butter in their life. Or maybe they have, you know, years ago and they're just like, what is this delicious thing? And (laughs) You know, so I really try to focus on the positive and, you know, everything we can do for these animals. And sometimes even the ones that are so far gone that we can't bring back to a state of health, you know, at least we can end their suffering, if nothing else, and, you know, give them a good way out. 
it's such an important point. And I think one thing that is so true every time is that they're always positive. The animals are always positive. They don't think back. Um, they definitely have forward thinking. And so we're able to see um, happy faces even in very, very sad conditions. And I think that that also is is very helpful because no matter what they've been through, they're happy for the moment and, and what is to come. Uh, and I think that really does give you a sense of moving forward. Absolutely. Animals don't remember the past that bad. Yeah. And, and I guess that was going to be my question. Yeah. Is, is once they leave this situation, you know, I think it's, it's easy to see the deplorable conditions that they're in and, and worry how that's going to affect them going forward. Um, how do you, how do you find they do once they get into a new home? They do great. <laughs> you know, that's, that's, a pretty blank, that's a pretty blanket statement, but um, <laughs> I, I'm currently fostering a cat. I've been fostering her for over a year and a half. Um, just because the courts take forever in this country. Um, but she came from a, a very large hoarding situation of over 700 animals. And um, she lives in my house, and I've only got wow. six cats in the house. And she, I mean, you wouldn't know she was ever neglected or abused. You know, she struts around like she owns the place. She, <laughs> you know, she eats her food. She picks on the other cats. She's she's just living life like a normal cat. She doesn't have any any bad memories of that. And, and Jill, before I let you go, I want to ask you, you know, wh what do we need to do like to strengthen laws? Because the cases that I've personally been involved with, quite frankly, all they did was take the animals, you know, but what do we need to do as a society? Like what kind of protections can we pass? I mean, what, what would you like to see done if you had that, that magic wand that, you know, fixes everything? What, what would you do? Oh God, what would I do? <laughs> I would, anyone that is hoarding in, in my mind would have mandatory, you know, psychological evaluations and help that lasted, you know, years. And, you know, they would have someone from animal control or animal services visiting them on a weekly basis to make sure that they are not gaining more animals. Um, you know, but I think from the abuse standpoint, they need more than just a slap on the wrist. I think sometimes the maximum fine for, you know, even for, for pit bull fighting, which is a felony in all 50 states for fighting pit bulls, I think six months is the maximum sentence. And usually those people are, you know, brought up on other charges like drugs and guns and things like that that get them in jail for longer. But there need to be more serious repercussions than a slap on the wrist and, you know, a thousand dollar fine because that doesn't deter anyone from doing anything. So I think there need to be real repercussions and also real help for the people who clearly need this help. Right. Like why why are why are we finding it fun to watch this kind of violence and and what is getting us into a situation where we're using this as a source of income and 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 things like that it it's so true and i think too it kind of almost speaks to the to that one health state of mind where we really need to be communicating across the lines of medicine and you know discussing what's going on and how these different conditions are resulting in in these different actions on people's part because you know, just to circle back, like we said, a lot of these people really truly believe that they're doing the right thing. Um, it's not always um, a malicious thing. It's it's almost never a malicious thing. And so it, it would be so wonderful, I think, if we could have better communication across those lines to help resolve this because it truly is a mental health issue in so many cases. Absolutely. It absolutely is. And Jill, where can people go to get more information, maybe to help you, ASPCA, whatever? What, what are some of the resources that we can steer our listeners toward? Well, they can always go to ASPCA.org. 
um, just to find out, you know, what that organization is doing. That's a national organization. Everyone always asks, well, where do you work? And, you know, their headquarters are in New York City, but we work all over the country. Um, I've worked with Becky on the FUR team, that's Field Investigations and Response, and we're the people who go out there and actually help, you know, rescue these animals from hoarding and abuse and, and even um, natural disasters. So, you know, with hurricanes, we respond to that. Um, but they can also visit, um, like I mentioned earlier, the LINK website. It's nationallinkcoalition.org. And that talks about, like I was saying earlier, the link between domestic violence, child abuse. And they have a newsletter that they send out on a monthly basis. And they have all sorts of resources and information. And even for veterinary professionals, they have you know, checklists for you to have at your clinic or questionnaires for your clients to fill out that might help you realize people that need help before they present and you're like, oh gosh, what do I do here? Absolutely. There is so many resources out there. And again, if you're seeing, you know, something that you have a question about, it's worth finding out the laws in your state, knowing what you can do and making sure that you take action. I could talk about this all day long. It's something I know we both share a lot of passion for, but I want to thank you again so much, Dr. Kirk, for taking the time and hanging out with us this morning and, and helping so many animals by educating everyone who listens about what they can do to really help. Absolutely. I would like you, I could talk about this all day, but thank you so much for having me. Yeah. And Jill, just uh, from another veterinarian, thank you so much for all of your efforts because you are truly making a positive difference in a part of the world that we often don't even like to think about exists. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Oh my gosh. You're welcome. Thank you. Well, you've heard what we have to say about animal hoarding. Now we want to hear from you. Get in touch with us on Facebook and Instagram at Veterinary Viewfinder. We know that you guys have probably had some of these experiences and, and we'd like to, to hear what you've been seeing because sharing your experiences might help somebody else realize that they're not alone and that by reporting even something small, they may start build that building that trail that helps someone get the help that they need. You can also find us on Twitter at Vet Viewfinder and please leave us a review, especially on iTunes. If you're liking the podcast, four or five stars helps us reach more people. And don't forget to click to subscribe so you don't miss one great episode of the Veterinary Viewfinder. Until next time. Bye. 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 Excellent. That was excellent. That was awesome. Dr. Jill, you pulled through for us. Yes. yes. <laughs>